Luke chapter 18. In our study of the parables of Jesus, we come to another parable on prayer. And follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 1, here in Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As I said, this is another parable about prayer. The first one that we looked at was the parable of the friend who came at midnight. And as I mentioned afterwards, we had a number of discussions uh, about that sermon because many see the central theme of that parable as persistence in prayer. And I'd argue that that, in fact, was not the case. Um, Let's review just a bit, just about the nature of parables. When we think about Jesus' ministry, do we imagine that he had sort of, you know, uh, canned parables, if you wish, that every every time he came into town, he he spit it out and he said it exactly the same way in every place that he went to? I don't think so. He was a traveling teacher. And he taught people depending on where they were and what they needed to hear. And so he may have given certain parables in different ways, giving, uh, depending on the context and what the needs of the people were in that particular situation. As we've seen the last few weeks, the parable of the great banquet was a challenge to Jesus' contemporaries, the religious leaders. And we have at least two occasions on which he gave it. The one that we saw first was in Luke when he was eating at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And the second time was when he was, in fact, in the temple the week before he was crucified. Um, And yet they're not the same parable. They're very similar. And here we get a sense that Jesus, as a traveling preacher, as a traveling teacher, would not say things exactly the same way every time. When it came to the topic of prayer, uh, Jesus had a lot to say. I think more than we might imagine. So we need to take care that when we read something about prayer that we don't think, oh, okay, Jesus has only one thing to say about prayer, and so let's, this is just a different way of saying the same thing. I don't think that that's the case. Many people think that what Jesus wanted to get across was the idea of persistence, that you should not give up when you are praying for something. And so many people see the parable we look at today as Jesus encouraging us not to give up in prayer, that we, in fact, are to be persistent. Um, We will see as we go along whether or not this is the case. But let's, let's talk about prayer a minute. I think prayer is important. And yet, if we would be honest, in many ways it is difficult. 
One pastor put it this way, There is perhaps no aspect of the Christian life that so frequently raises problems to people's minds as prayer. And it is right that it should be the case. Because prayer is, after all, the highest activity of the human soul. The moment you begin to face what really happens in prayer, you find inevitably that it is the profoundest activity in which you have ever engaged. For those of us who struggle with prayer, I think oftentimes we forget that prayer is not simply a small thing. It is, in fact, one of the most profound things that we can do. We are, in fact, engaged in conversation with God, the one who made us and the one who sustains us. In Luke's gospel, in contrast to the other gospels, he really emphasizes the place of prayer in the life of Jesus. And I must confess, I've read through the gospels many times, and this was something that I had missed. There are at least seven different times in which we are told about Jesus praying in Luke that we're not told this anywhere else. So, for example, in chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized in Luke 3.21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And then we read about the Spirit of God coming down as a dove. But none of the others, I mean, they mention his baptism, but they don't talk about Jesus praying. In chapter 5, verse 16, it's sort of an interlude in between Jesus healing a leper and then his confrontation with the religious authorities. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So in between having healed a man of leprosy and now confronting his enemies, we see that Jesus prays. In chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, before Jesus chose the twelve apostles, he prayed. Let me read it to you. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. So before choosing the apostles, Jesus prayed. In chapter 9, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And then we have that great confession from Peter. The Mount of Transfiguration, which Matthew writes about, but he doesn't mention about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And then as we saw when we looked at chapter 11, uh, the friend who came at midnight, before he gave the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was actually praying. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So as Luke constructs his gospel, Jesus and prayer are very closely connected. And we see Jesus praying. It's mentioned far more often in Luke than it is in the other gospels. So let's look at this passage today that deals with prayer. First of all, what is the context? And we've seen that this is really important because otherwise you can make a parable mean anything that you want. When did Jesus say what he said? It will help us understand what he meant. Um, 
One of the problems we have in the modern world, and yet it's, it's a good problem and yet it's difficult, is that our Bibles are divided up into chapters and verses. And so, whether we're aware of it or not, oftentimes we think that the end of a chapter means the end of a thought. And a new chapter means a new thought. The same way with a paragraph. You start a new paragraph, it seems that you're starting a new thought. And oftentimes we fail to see that there is, in fact, a connection with what came previously. The context for our passage today actually goes back to the previous chapter, chapter 17. In the last part of chapter 17, Jesus speaks about the coming of the kingdom. And I'll just read part of it, uh, verses 30 to 35 of chapter 17. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. I've read just a part of this, but it sets the stage for the parable of the persistent widow. Because it's after this that Jesus then gives us the parable of the persistent widow. And by the way, right after this parable, if you go back to chapter 18 and verse number 9, he gives us another parable, and there it is about two men praying, the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you look at verses 9 and 10, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. At least for me, something becomes clear. That from what comes before and what comes after um, this parable of the persistent widow, it deals with much more than, I think, being merely persistent in prayer, not giving up in prayer. I think there's much more to it than that. But let's go on. We know the biblical context, what was the cultural context? Well, the story is about a widow and an unjust judge. There are three things, at least, that we should know about widows at the time that Jesus was teaching. First of all, their place in society. Widows were easily recognized for their distinctive attire. When they became a widow, they dressed differently and everyone knew, oh, this woman is a widow. And since most women married in their teens, some would say even in their early teens, there are a lot of widows because their husbands died before them. But they weren't necessarily old. They, their husbands had died uh, and they left behind young widows. Oftentimes they had no means of support. If a husband left an estate, oftentimes the widow did not inherit it. And that, in fact, may be the issue here, where the widow wants justice against her adversary, that she has no means of support because what her husband's left behind has been taken from her. If a woman remained with her husband's family, then she was almost in the position of a servant, a servile position, uh, inferior. She wasn't like the rest of the family. If she returned to her family, whatever money the family had received as a dowry had to be returned to her husband's family. So economically, the position of widows was very weak. 
The second thing we should know is that the, the Old Testament addresses us time and time again. In Exodus 22, when the law is being given, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. This is in the law. And then in the prophets, in Isaiah 10, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Their position in society was one of weakness. And it is striking that God describes himself or defines himself as their helper and their refuge. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. The third thing that I would tell you about widows and Luke's gospel is that, again, as it was with prayer, he speaks more about widows than do the other gospel writers. So in chapter 2, you may remember when Jesus as a baby is taken up to the temple, and Simeon is there, and he makes this great prophetic announcement. But we're also told that Anna was there. She was in the temple, and she got to see the infant Jesus and knew who he was. In chapter 4, the first time that Jesus preached in his hometown after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he spoke about a widow. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And by the way, because of what Jesus said about this, his townmates tried to kill him. In chapter 7, one of the most moving stories to me in Luke's gospel is the story of the widow of Nain, N-A-I-N. She only had one son. And as Jesus approaches the city, they are bringing his dead body out to bury him, her only son. And we read, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And then he raised her son from the dead. In chapter 20, he denounced the scribes who devoured widows' houses. In chapter 21, he tells us the story of the widow's offering. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So we need to know that about widows as we come to this parable. The second thing we need to know about is the judicial system. And what we know is sketchy at best. We think, we're pretty sure, that in fact there were two court systems. One that was controlled by the Romans, because they were the occupying force, and the one that was controlled by the Jews, that is, it was more of a local system. I think this judge is not a Jewish judge, but he is in fact a Gentile judge. He's a Roman uh, that the Romans have put in a position in part because of the way he describes himself. I mean, he says about himself, I neither fear God nor care about people. 
I don't think a Jewish judge would say that. Um, this is something I think a Roman uh, would be more likely to say. By the way, the description of this man is a blatant violation of the two great commandments. We are to love the Lord your God. We are to love your neighbors yourself. And he doesn't fear God and he doesn't care about people. So at the most basic level, this is not a nice person. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does talk about going to one judge. And this is somewhat confusing because people had always thought that there was like sort of a panel of judges. But Jesus says, um, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown, you may be thrown into prison. By the way, I, I, as I said, I think the judge is a Gentile, but I don't want to be too firm on that because in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, um, God says, So I will, put, or I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners of justice. But do not fear me. And so it very well may be that this is a Jewish judge who says, I don't fear God. I don't care about people. This is what we need to see in this story. The widow is the epitome. She is the, the best example we can have of someone who is helpless in society. Someone who is weak. She has no money to bribe the judge, which was common in those days. She has no uh, uh, protector, no one to defend her. She has no one who will stand up for her in court. She has nothing except this. She was in the right. Because she doesn't ask for vengeance. She asks for justice. So she is in the right. And because she is in the right, she goes to the unjust judge and continually goes to him until he grants what she wants. The judge, on the other hand, is seen as the epitome of power. And so, in Jewish society in the first century, in which Jesus lived, we have opposite ends of the spectrum. The weakest person in society and the strongest person in society, a judge. A judge who has the power to make decisions that can affect your life. And here is this weak person coming to a strong person and saying, please grant me justice. In this scenario, the woman is seen as powerless. She is seen as helpless and even hopeless. But what happens? She gets justice. She gets what she wanted. In verse number five, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. It's an interesting thing to say about the weakest person in society. And literally in Greek is that she will come and give me a black eye. Um, that this woman keeps harassing me and I'm just going to give her what she wants. I will give her justice so she'll stop bothering me. 
So what is the point of the parable? What is this all about? Well, it would seem that the first verse tells us, if you look at verse number one, because I want you to see this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And so it would seem that the point is we should be persistent in prayer. But let's stop, let's stop a moment and step back. We have seen in our study that there are different kinds of parables. Uh, we usually think of a parable as a story that's trying to convey a particular kind of message. But there are various kinds of parables. We, there are proverbs. There are riddles. In the proverb, for example, physician, heal thyself. A riddle is how can Satan cast out Satan? Or comparison, the kingdom of God is like. We have a number of these. But then we have the parables of contrast. This is one of those parables. The unjust judge. The purpose of a parable is to change our behavior. It is to make us disciples of Jesus Christ. And it does so by telling us who God is. What God's kingdom is like. And what it is that God is seeking to do on earth. But as I've said throughout this series, we may miss this. Because we may think that the parable is about us, the listener, either the original audience or us as those who read it centuries later. We need to see that the parables are telling us about God. They are theocentric. This parable is to tell us about God more than it is to tell us about ourselves. So when it comes to the matter of prayer, this parable or anyone talking about prayer, what is it that inspires our prayer? What is it that gives us the desire to pray? What empowers our prayer? How we answer that question, in fact, reveals our basic instincts about our relationship to God. See, because when it comes to prayer, I think we have one of two choices as a beginning point. One is to focus on prayer as what I am doing, my activity. The other is to focus on the one to whom we are praying, that is God and his character. And that helps us to understand verses 6, 7, and 8. Look at them if you would. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? By the way, there are some people who argue that these verses don't go with the parable. But how can that be? In verse number six, see what the unjust judge says. Okay. If we don't take them with the parable, then I would say, okay, the parable is about being persistent in prayer. But if they do go with the parable, and I believe they do, then the point of the parable points elsewhere. And here we have to go back to chapter 17, verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus was teaching his disciples that between the time of his earthly ministry and his return, which they didn't fully understand because he hadn't left yet, but in between those times, um, there would be great difficulties and many would suffer. 
So what are you supposed to do? Jesus has left. Jesus is coming back. What are you supposed to do in between? In a word, you are to pray. And you are to be persistent and pray. They are to pray. But some would say it seems that Jesus is implying that the more persistent you are in prayer, and the longer you pray and the harder you pray, the sooner he will come back. There's something we need to recognize here. And that is there is a difference between immediate and quickly. Because Jesus says that God will give us justice quickly. But that doesn't mean immediately. It doesn't mean right now. This is a theme we see in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament as well. That is that there is a delay. That God's people are praying for justice. They are praying that God would rescue them. And yet the time goes on and on and on. And so it seems that God will not answer their prayer. When in fact God said that he would answer their prayer quickly. What is being said is there may be a delay, but when God decides to act, then he will act and he will act quickly. Uh, we saw this in Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, it seems that God is slow. He's, he made a promise that Jesus is going to come back, but he hasn't. The next verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When Jesus comes, it will be quickly. So there is a delay. But once God, the time that God is appointed to act, he will act and he will act quickly. Delay, but then there is quickly. So, to remind ourselves, what is it that they are supposed to be praying for? In verse number one. That they ought always to pray and not give up. Well, like the widow in the parable, for justice, for things to be made right. Jesus has come and preached the good news. Now, shortly, he will leave. Then there will come a time when he will come back. But in the meantime, the church will be persecuted. People will suffer. Things will not go as they should. So what should God's people do? They should pray for justice, that God would make things right. This parable is given to assure his listeners that one day things will be made right. When one suffers injustice, it's like suffering physical pain. It is as though you cannot imagine a time when you did not have pain. And so it is very easy to have a sense of helplessness or hopelessness. I'm going to have this pain forever. God's people say, injustice, when will things be made right? And in that context, they might say, well, I'm going to stop praying. Why should I pray? Jesus says they ought always to pray and not give up. Because if you look at the very end of the parable, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is that sort of that that thing at the end, almost the punchline that doesn't seem to belong in the parable, and yet it's absolutely there. This points to the two things that are being said in this parable. The first point is that 
God is not like the unjust judge, that God is a God of justice. He is merciful. He is patient. He is eager to assist his people. But the second point is that we need to stay alert. We need to be ready because when God's justice comes, it will come quickly. It's been delayed, and so we might say, well, what's the use of praying? What's the use of waiting? But in fact, when it happens, it will happen quickly. In many ways, the vindication has already begun. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But it is not yet finished. And one day, Jesus will come back for all of us, take us to be with him. As God's people, as disciples of Jesus, we are to remain faithful. And how are we to remain faithful? How do we know that we're remaining faithful? Because we pray. Now, by way of conclusion, I almost feel like this is the sermon 2.0. This is the second part of the sermon. It's what I'm not saying. Because I don't want you to misunderstand understand me. You might be wondering, Damon, are you saying that we are not to be persistent in prayer? Except for, let's say, justice. But for other things, we should pray and then just sort of let it go. Um, many people see this parable as saying you should be persistent in prayer, particularly from verse number one. I don't disagree. I, don't, I think we are to be persistent in prayer. What we need to be careful of is that our persistence does not turn into insistence and that our asking turn into demanding from God that God give us what we want. At least two places in the gospel, we have people asking for something and being rather persistent. The first one is the story of a woman, the Syrophoenician woman. Her daughter was demon-possessed. Let me read it to you. This is from Matthew chapter 15. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. That's her first request, and he does not answer. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And your daughter, her daughter was healed at that moment. I recently encountered someone who found this passage very troubling because Jesus does not answer her right away. And when he does answer her, basically he seems to be calling her a dog. I was sent to Israel. I wasn't sent to the Gentiles. Uh, I have to give food to the children of Israel and not to dogs. And yet this woman is persistent. She did not give up. And her request was granted. But there's another person in the Gospels who prayed. And I think persistence could be used of his praying. And that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, 
My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then the second time he said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then Matthew tells us he repeated this a third time. Although Jesus was strengthened by an angel, we are told in Luke 22, and though he was persistent, his request was not granted. But in both stories, the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus in the garden, the key issue is not their praying. It is the character of the one to whom they are praying. This woman is asking Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus is asking his father, possible that he would not be crucified. The character of the one to whom we pray is the central issue. Paul learned this when he prayed that God would take away his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times. And the answer was not no. The answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. God is a God of grace. His character is the issue. Then the question might come up, okay, about the persistence. What about what Paul said in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Pray without ceasing. We find this in the King James and in the ESV. The NIV has pray continually. Someone might say, Damon, you seem to be saying that this is not what Jesus taught. That perhaps following the example of Jesus in the garden and Paul with his thorn in the flesh, we can pray about something three times and then let it go. This is not what I am saying. When it comes to prayer, there are two things we should keep in mind. The character of God. By the way, that's why we can pray without ceasing. Because he's not going to say, oh, I'm going to get a black eye if this person keeps coming and praying to me over and over and over again. God is a God of grace and mercy. He will not get annoyed at our praying. We're not praying to an unjust judge. But the second thing is the character of our prayers. You may notice that the verse says, pray without ceasing. It does not say, ask without ceasing, or insist without ceasing, harass without ceasing. There's much more to prayer than merely asking. And yet God is not the unjust judge. He will listen to us as we pray. But let's, let's be fair. Let's be honest. For some, the issue is not pray without ceasing. The issue is pray. Um, without ceasing would be nice. Just the fact that prayer should be part of our daily lives. This is where our faithfulness is seen to God. If we are faithful to God and to the gospel, if we are disciples of Jesus, it will be seen in the fact that we pray. And that's why Jesus wants to know, when he comes back, will anybody be praying? Will there be faith on the earth? Will there be anyone praying? Or will, in fact, people say, well, you know, you know it's been a long time. It's, he's delayed his coming. Um, and will they give up? Will they no longer pray that he would return? You know, on the face of it, I think for us, living when and where we do, and living in Southern California, it might be easier for us to pray. This may sound strange, but we have a fairly decent economy. We have safety. We have health. We have good weather. Um, 
But we're to be faithful in prayer no matter where we are or when we live. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is our calling. And we're to remember who we're praying to. He's not the unjust judge. He's not the guy who gets sick of us asking him over and over again. He is the one who hears us. He is the one who loves us. In closing, I want to read to you a part of uh, Psalm 11. It's a psalm I came across in my reading this week. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everything or everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Pray and not give up. That is our calling. We should not imagine that God will give us something simply because we've asked for it many, many times. God gives us what we should have because he is not the unjust judge. He may make us wait, but he knows what is best. And we must take care that in our persistence in prayer, we not become insistent, that we become demanding, that we begin to see God as, as Bob Dylan put it, an errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires. No. He is a God who loves his people. Let's pray together. Father, if some of us would be honest, the problem is not being persistent in prayer, it's simply praying. We confess this and ask for your forgiveness. Help us to see that I think we get things wrong when we focus on our activity rather than on who you are, your character, a loving Father. You're not an unjust judge. You're not someone who gives in because we badger you. You're someone who does what is best for his people. And we are to pray without ceasing. And our praying not to merely be asking, but praising you and thanking you for all you have done. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.